Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Life in the Peloton, but this is the new series that I've kicked off called The Race Communique. Being across at the Tour de France this year, I was over there with the cycling podcast. I got the itch and I thought it'd be great to sit down and just talk about what is going on in the World Tour Peloton each month. That's my idea anyway. I think I'm going to launch this series next year, but I wanted to do something after the Tour de France. And I've decided to do it together with Luke Durbridge and Tom Southern. We're going to communicate. We're going to talk about what is going on in the racing at the moment. What are the latest trends? What is the gossip? I don't know. Everything that's going on in the world tour or whatever interests us at the moment, we're going to discuss it. I think it's great because Luke Durbridge, he is racing in the world tour. Tom Southern, he is a director sportive in the world tour. And I am just a fan of the racing now. Of course, I've got my experience from when I was racing, but more, I'm just interested what is going on over there now because it is changing so fast. And what I want to do is bring it to you guys in the Life in the Peloton style, break down what is life is like as a pro, what that life is like, talk about the racing, and then go from there. Who knows what it's going to be like? I bring you the first episode. This is more or less capturing what happened in this year's amazing Tour de France. Plus, we talk about a little bit about the end, what is coming up. Of course, there's a little cheeky quiz at the end as well. Let me know what you think, guys. Sit back and enjoy. Here we go. The inaugural race communique. All right, boys, let's kickstart this. This is the first edition of the Race Communique. Well, it is the first edition of the online Race Communique. This series did kick off back in January at the Tour Down Under with my good friend Tom Southern. But now we've thought this is a good idea. Why don't we review what's going on in the peloton, in the racing, and just the trends and the, the rumors, the myths, whatever it is, each month of the year. And we're going to start... Right now, after the Tour de France, the biggest race of the year, I'm joined by, once again, my good friend, DS at EF Education Easy Post, Tom Southern. Welcome back to the Race Communique. Thanks, mate. Nice to be back. Um, All fresh after the Tour. Raring to go, mate. I'm also joined here by another very, very good friend and old racing partner, training half-wheeler, Big friend of the podcast, Luke Durbridge. He is a rider on Jayco Alula. Just finished the Tour de France. Derbs, welcome to the pod, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me back on. I'm looking forward to uh, hashing out some uh, race communicate with you boys. Well, we don't really know how this is going to go, so let's just kick it off. And I've written up some kind of rough agenda that we're going to cover. It's mainly going to be about the Tour de France. We're all over there. We all got to see each other a little bit. So, guys, what I guess what is the latest news, Derbs? I'm going to cut straight to you, mate, because what's been happening with you? How did you actually get through the race, per se? The Tour de France is just over. We're only a couple of days out. The dust has settled a bit now. I guess you get this feeling now, I always had this feeling, you finish the race, you sort of hate the race by the end, but actually a couple of days after, you've got a chance to review it and go, right, how am I feeling about the race? What's your thoughts coming out of the tour so far, mate? Well, I'm looking at myself in the Zoom call at the moment. I look buckled. Um, but uh, we're only a day out, really. Uh, we're on the Champs-Élysées on Sunday evening, um, and... I guess you get that little post-tour depression. I, I always get a bit depressed that it's over, you know, like 
don't really, I mean, don't really know what to do. I sort of asked on the WhatsApp group what my program was for Monday morning. Um, just as a bit of a, I was a bit lost. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, in, in, in a nutshell for, for us to wrap up the tour, um, personally was, was quite good. Um, most days I was, I was busy. Um, we had Dylan Grunewagen, our sprinter and Simon Yates, our GC guy. So every day was either for Simon or for Dylan. And um, we didn't come out with a stage win, which was unfortunate, but we came out with, you know, three or four second places and um, Simon was fourth on GC. So, yeah, didn't quite hit the target. I guess we were going for podium, so fourth is, you know, next best. Um, so you got to be happy with that. And Dylan was 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 close in a couple of stages. But me personally, I'm, uh, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm pretty tired. But, uh, yeah, I pulled up okay. What's pretty tired at this point? You know, so everyone out there is wondering what pretty tired is. You know, that's like me waking up sort of 5 a.m. I'm feeling pretty tired this morning. Give us a level of pretty tired. Well, I went for a ride before um, and I'm like a swollen balloon. I'm like, (laughs) uh, what, like three kilos, maybe four kilos more (laughs) than the day of the Champs-Élysées. I feel puffy. Uh, you, you you sleep, but you can't really sleep. You know, when you go to sleep and you you're that tired, you make that little noise, just like huh, like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, my quads like are so sore, and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm like, you know, I'm wrecked. Yeah, I'm wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a Michelin man that's been run over. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, that's my level of tired. The other side of it, Southern, you were there in the race, but you're in the car. You just got to cruise along with the arm out the window. I guess you sort of got one arm suntanned because it was a hot Tour de France this year. I was over there for a couple of weeks. I got to experience the heat wave. How are you feeling, mate? A couple of days after. Yeah. Man, I am absolutely as fresh as a daisy. I mean, driving 3,000 Ks <laughs> in three weeks, it's, it's piece of, yeah, piece of piss. But no, I mean, it's funny what Luke said because I have the same, because I, I make the schedule, right? And, and I have like this like kind of weird thing when I don't have to organize anyone on Monday morning. So I've got like, I don't have to worry about what time the bus leaves. I don't have to worry about if there's a traffic jam or anything like that, or whether Amador is going to make it, you know, down to the bus on time. <laughs> and like, it's like, ah, oh, I've got, I've got no one to organize. Uh, maybe I can go and organize these people over here doing their shopping or whatever. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one when you come out of it. Cause it's, it's such a strict routine. For everyone, you know, mm. ev- everything you do for three weeks is basically based on a, a schedule, like maximize your time of recovery or get here on time or this person's going to do this now. Then all of a sudden you're just in this, you just got like a whole Abyss, day when you don't, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's strange for, I think, everyone. Do you miss like that? There's one thing I used to always miss is it's weirdly doing my own stuff, taking care of myself, you know, doing your own washing and doing your own dishes. It's a weird thing. I remember Derbs, when we were at the Classics, might sound weird, everyone listening is like, it was nice to escape the hotel to go back and cook your own dinner one night. It's sort of to take control of your own life again. Yeah, we sat around the uh, hotel on the final day final evening before we went to the Champs-Élysées and we are all just sitting around just we had one beer and we are just sort of chatting and then uh, Chris Jorgensen our Danish teammate of us is like what's your one thing you're gonna what, what's the first thing you want to do when you when you finish your Grand Tour everyone went around you know like 
hang out with your kids. And one guy said, I'll, I'll, I'll have a nap, you know, something like that. And then, um, but like for me personally, it was just like, I, I just wanted to like cook, you know, just like go to the kitchen, prepare my own meal. Um, you know, like open the fridge, maybe don't get anything out of it, close it, you know, like then open it again and have a look, nothing in there, you know, close it again. Um, yeah, have you cooked yet? Uh, yeah, I, I cooked last night actually. Yeah, had just a sandwich more or less, but it was it was satisfying sandwich. I love I love those dinners, <laughs> sandwich dinners. Yeah, cooked yeah, a sandwich. Yeah, yeah. 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 well, <laughs> cooked it. Yeah, I cooked the toast. Toast was, <laughs> was, was cooking. It was it was heat heat applied. But yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the race a little bit because I thought it was actually one of the best Tour de France's I've watched in my years of watching the Tour. I've actually gone back and watched the 2003 Tour again in preparation for this podcast. It led me down a rabbit hole. I was doing a bit of research about 2003. That is my favorite Tour de France. Next thing I know, I'm watching the full race. Um, such a great tour. I'm only about an hour into it. About stage four, guys. We should should we just talk about two three? No, let's talk about this two this tour. Twenty years later, and it's produced an awesome tour. We already know that Vingegaard he got away with the victory, his second Tour de France win. Um, Pagacha close second, and that whole rivalry was really interesting to watch from the outside. I'm actually more interested to know what it was like on the inside for you guys. Do you sort of care about that? Because you're worrying about your own teams. What's your opinion on that whole rivalry and how it sort of played out this year? Derbs? We, we definitely, our race meeting was uh, like UAE jumbo, what they will do. Because in the end, when it became such a sparring match up until probably stage 16, like we just would have to work out what they were going to do. Um, mm. The good thing is that, you know, we had Adam Yates uh, and Simon Yates. So we might have an, a bit of an idea of what UAE might do because uh, the brothers talk. But we sort of had to just do our own race. Would they talk? So you would not you would get intel from Simon? It's pretty easy to see in terms of if UAE were going to control it or not as if five guys line up behind the car. So, you know, you might not you might know it in the meeting or you might know it just on the start line. But, you know... For example, someone might say, oh, yeah, you are going to control today. Or like, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, sounds good. But, uh, and look, same with Tom trying to put guys in the breakaway. It's just like, you would see that straight away. You know, as soon as UAE just came to the front or Jumbo would come to the front, you know, well, to be honest, it's not going to be a breakaway day. Or, you know, they're all chilled at the back and then no one's really at the front, not not on the car. And then all of a sudden you realise, okay, well, it's actually... Yeah, it's, it's a chance today. So, yeah, I, you had to really sort of like wait to see what Jumbo or UAE did because there were such powerhouse teams that if they want it to be back, it will be back. And if they want to control it, it will be controlled. If, or if they want to let it get out of control and make it chaos, then it'll also be that too. So, yeah, that's just the reality of it. So, yeah, we definitely were um, dictated by those two teams and, and that and that battle for, for quite some time. We did it almost, it was almost the opposite because the, the control was so strong, like, and we had to go for the breaks, right? Because we didn't have, like you guys were still on GC. So we basically said, right, there's like, we're, we're going to go in the break today no matter what. And like, you guys just need to be aware we've got no control over what UAE or Visma are going to do. And if they want to close it, 
it's going to get closed. Really sorry, it's not going to work out. But we still had to try and go, which is like, you know, like normally you can pick those days like, right, it's going to make it today, lads. In you go, sort of thing. Mm. Um, those days didn't exist. So it's like, instead it's like, right, we have to go. We've got to go. And if it makes it, it's going to have nothing to do with us, basically. But you guys are going to have to do your race up front anyway. So you didn't really have the option, did you? You know, that's the thing. Like you, you, roll, you have to roll the dice because if you stay in the peloton, there's two guys that can win the bike race. You know, that's it, really. So, yeah. Yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't yeah, do, do anything. It's like, you know. But tell me what was tell me what was going on here because most of the stages I was watching, these were some of the, the, the hardest, most ridiculous stages I have seen for such a long time where the GC guys were just in the brakes. These weren't necessarily brakes. These were just like the splits of the peloton. I haven't seen this... Yeah, you know, maybe you see this once or twice in a Grand Tour, but this was continually happening. What was that like, even from a DS point of view or from the rider's point of view? I'd love to know from a rider's point of view. Were you just losing your mind, Derb, going, seriously, come on, guys. Like, why are you going up the road? Like, you know, what about me? What about me at the back here? Seriously. Oh, man, it was insane. Like, I think the day that we that, that sort of all came to a head was stage uh, 19. Where you thought like, yeah, like that was just insane. Like we averaged 49, over 49 k's an hour, uh, you know, and it was two and a half thousand meters of climbing. And it was just sort of like, oh, like Trek may control for Mads Pedersen. Uh, if not, it'll be a large breakaway and they'll go on to to win. And it just started and like, like if Tom's, for example, if there's two teams that can win from a hard from a hard stage if it comes back. Well, then there's like, well, 18 other teams that literally want to get in the breakaway. So 18 times eight, you know, everyone is just like, this is my only chance. And so they just, every day, everyone just threw the kitchen sink at it going like, this is my only chance. So what ended up happening was, it was just like mayhem. There was no control. There was like, I just couldn't, I just couldn't understand. It's like, okay, well, I just got to hold the wheel. I ended up being in the break that day but the break that went away to win went at 95k into the race. I didn't put one attack in until 95k in. I just survived in the wheel squealing. And then all of a sudden we came through an intermediate sprint and like 30 guys went away. And then everyone went like, that's enough. And then 30 guys went on to, to, to win that day. But like, imagine that going in, okay, I'm just going to have to suffer the 95 kilometers and that'll be the break of the day. Like, no one's ever going to think that. So what's what's changed then? Is it is it is it lack of control? Is is say a team like Yumbo Visma going? You know what? We don't care. We would rather this just continually race because we're happy to just put guys in it. Is it lack of control or is it just literally the power of the peloton and they just cannot control it, or are they just going throwing their hands up and just showing no control? It's a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, like when you get to those days now, like Luke said, it's like. There's so little else left out there that that is the day. So stage 19, you could say from two weeks before the tour, this is the day for the break. And there's 150 riders basically with nothing, right? So when one team misses it, they just have to pull. Like, like we were there in that situation. We had to ride behind that nine-man group with uh, Uno X and uh, Israel. Because it's like, well, we've got nothing tomorrow because it's a GC day. And we had nothing yesterday because it was supposed to be a sprint. So we have to throw absolutely everything at it. And I think there's a lot of teams like 
if you look at the fight for the polka dot jersey, like that was pretty intense and that dictated a lot of the racing and who normally cares about the polka dot jersey? Basically, mm. no one. Yeah. So th- like the teams class, those secondary cat- categories, like all of a sudden they're valuable, you know, because those two mm. teams are so dominant at the top. Well, let's just drop down and see, have a look at the next year. And I've called it the best of the rest, the Yates's, because it sort of seemed like that. And I made this comment when I was over there that in any other race, you know, with the, with the, with the two favourites away there, Vingegaard and Pogaccia, there was actually a really good race behind. And that would normally be sort of the GC race that we would see in, a, in any other race, maybe like the Giro or the Vuelta, this, or even in like a, a Paris-Nice or something like that. The best of the rest, I guess. The two Yateses. Um, tell me what you guys sort of think about, you know, these guys sort of coming to the front. I know they've been there for a long time and doing different things. You know, Simon at the Giro, we've seen. But Adam, I feel like Adam has almost sort of found his place there at UAE, even though he's sort of been searching for it after after Green Edge and then moving to um, Ineos. Uh, it seemed like he was the both of them seem like they were at the, the the best of themselves that I've seen in the last few years. Oh, for sure, I can confirm that. Like Simon was in some of the best shape he's ever done. You know, I don't know exact numbers, but he was saying like, "Yeah, this is the best stuff that I've been I've done." Um, the level is just so high. Um, I think we saw Garrett Thomas the year before pretty much dominate that third position. Like it wasn't as big a challenge to see who was going to be third. It was like, G's third, he's clearly third. There was a big gap, obviously, to Vingegaard and Pogacar, but, like, G was always third. But that third place was chased all the way until the... Well, I mean, we, we moved up onto fourth place on the final day. So, you know, it was chased all the way in. Um, and I think everyone knew going in that, okay, we can't do anything about Pogacar and Vingegaard, but the, that third place is, is, is really valuable. And to be standing on the podium in Paris... You know, like that's that's massive for, for 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 the team for for any team. So it was good to see Adam like right up there and get his finalies podium that he deserves. I think you know he's been fourth twice now in Grand Tours, once in the Vuelta, once in the Tour. So for him to get on the podium at a Grand Tour, I think you know I think he really deserves that. And um, yeah, I mean it was good to see those two boys. They sort of uh, they sort of help each other out as much as they can. You know. Uh, I think you, I don't know if you noticed. Yeah, do you do you believe that? You know, like it's it's easy to sort of see that, and and you know, you can read between the lines. It looks like they sort of are, but you know, you look at that stage where they they came into the finish, and Adam got the best assignment there. And I don't know. I I just imagined that how many times in their life would those two of I could imagine if I had a twin brother, you'd be racing down the street here in Lansfield where I live, going, oh, imagine one day we'd actually be sprinting for a stage of the Tour de France. Could you imagine, you know? And that scenario actually played out. So I'm like, can you imagine what this would have been like? And I'm sure you would have done it yourself with your mates and even on your own as you were growing up as a rider to actually have that play out in the Tour de France. Oh, man, I mean, it must be... It must be almost like dreamlike, you know, because it's 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 the chances of that happening, like in reality, just the, just just the two of you from the whole it's peloton. The two of them. Like, I mean, there's not even like a third right, like Pelo Bilbao just hanging out there. You know, it's like it's just those two. Um, but I, I would actually love to know, Turbo, what the like. I mean, I, yeah, like what happened at the finish there? Because it is like, is there an agreement? What's going to happen? Are they going to sprint? And in the end, it just ended. And I was like, ah, that's it. 
I mean, there was two 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 situations I think in the race that they really did help each other out. But like, yeah. especially that first day when they went away, um, Simon was laughing because when he came across to Adam, Adam goes to him, "Oh, you idiot!" Like said that to him <laughs> because if there's any, anyone else, so, uh, Adam was allowed to sit on. Because he was, you know, he had Pogacar in the back. But he's like, because it's you, I want to help you. You know, like he was he was so angry that Simon had come across to him and Simon's like, hey, mate, I'm just coming with you. He's like, why did you chase me? Because now I have to work with you. And then Adam's on the radio, can I work with Simon? And then he sits on and Simon's just going for it and then he's just waiting can I work with Simon, please? You know? <laughs> and eventually they said, yeah, you can work with Simon. So then he started giving him a few turns. But like I, when Simon came on the bus, he was laughing because he's like, oh, when I got across to him, he was like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> so, I mean, well, I was surprised that Adam beat him in the sprint. Um, obviously, I think Adam's level on that day was just, was better than Simon's because it was slight uphill and you just see him actually just you just see him ride Simon off the wheel normally Simon is faster um, and if it was flatter maybe Simon would have wrapped him up but um, in that sense you know I think uh, Adam was just stronger that day to be honest well, let's, let's talk about the, the big two once again. And look, I'm a Pogaccio fan. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's his socials. I don't know him personally. He just seems like a really relaxed, easygoing guy. And he's he's great, as as I say, I'm a journalist these days. So he's great as to cover, you know. And Jonas is a little bit more of the robot, um, you know, the laid back versus the robot. But at the end of the day, Jonas got the job done. I guess my question is to you guys, can Pog win again? They're two and two. Who's going on to get the third? And maybe it's not one of them. Who knows? But let's just say it's those two again next year. These two approaches, and I can imagine now, I don't know whether you guys have seen it, but on social media, you've got Pog doing a backflip into the swimming pool on the second rest day. That's all fun and games if he came away and won the race. But that is his character, and that's sort of true to what he is. And maybe that is Jonas's character too, to be the robot and be, you know, very calculated. I can imagine the Pog's probably going to come under a bit of scrutiny from his team now. Maybe he needs to pull it back, not put it on the socials. I don't know. What are you guys thinking now? Can Pog do it again, Southern? And, you know, in being in that team scenario as a DS and having a, you know, rain riders in and things like that, what's your opinion on his approach to the tour, I guess? I think that actually comes from the team. Um, I mean, firstly, the first thing I'd like to say is he won Flanders, right? So I almost get the feeling with him, like winning the tour is part of just winning races, which is completely different to the approach that Visma and Vingegaard have, you know? Um, but when I went to the TT, and this is an example I want to use, when I went to the TT in the morning, they were parked next to each other, right? And the Visma setup was like the buses were super organized. They had like cooling tent and all this stuff. And then... The, the UAE bus was parked facing the sun, so the sun was going to be in the faces of the riders while they warmed up. There were people kind of here, there. And like It was two completely different worlds. And I feel like, I feel like Pogacar's so good and UAE have done so well because he is so good. And part of that is like the little bit, not wilder, but like more relaxed 
way of doing things. Whereas Visma's was like clinical and you could just see they're going to get the job done. And probably if you swapped Vingegaard and Pogacar, you swapped their teams, neither, neither one of them would succeed. You know, Vingegaard would need more structure in um, the new AE could give him and Pogacar would just probably go, what, what am I doing here at Visma? So does the approach from both, both the approach works from both teams because of the characters they've got, but does that mean that Pogacar's always going to be second in the tour? Probably. But is he going to win Flanders? Is he going to win Liège? Could he win Roubaix? Yes. Like for all those other races. And if you, I think the reason you love, like you like Pogacar is the same reason I do. You just see this guy who comes second, smiles, enjoys himself and goes and wins. Yeah, he's going to, he might go and win San Sebastian next week or something. Just because he loves racing and it's cool. And it's like, I like that because I'm, I'm into cycling and the history of the sport and all of the sport, not, not just the tour. I love the fact he won Flanders and then came second in the tour. It's like, oh yeah, cool. I won Flanders, man. I mean, come on. <laughs> He's just there to race, exactly. He's just there to race and that's sort of what makes him so likable. Like you said, he doesn't need to go and win the tour five times. Maybe he can, maybe he will. And let's move on quickly and talk about the other sort of classifications in the race. The green jersey, Jasper Philipson actually had full control of that. But even though Mads Pedersen sort of fought him to the end there, he was only sort of about, well, he was over 100 points behind, so not really. But I did like that battle. Um, Southern, what did you think of the, the sprint sort of classification there, mate? I just want to talk about the green jersey itself. Oh, boys. What? Why have they changed that? The yay oh. or nay? Like, I'm, I'm nay. Like, I, I couldn't see that. When, when no. Simon, Simon Yates got it, that in the second stage, he was wearing it because, you know, he was second in the stage, got the green jersey. I, I didn't even know who he was. I was like, who is that guy in that green jersey when he was going over the top of the climb? Why have I they changed that? I think it's a sponsor. That? I think it is part of the sponsored colour of the green jersey is darker now. Skoda. Yeah. So it's like Skoda green is like darker than that. But like... So what? Like, I'm sure there's been jerseys sponsored in the past. Like, they're not going to change. Like, oh, I, I didn't like it at all. Like, I mean, the Kermit Green is just the way to go. You, you couldn't see it. It was like making a jersey that's less visible than visible. You know, it's like, how do you even do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's go to the polka dot. A personal favorite jersey of mine, the full polka dots. I'm a big fan of everyone. When you get the polka dot, you got to go full polka dots when you get it. Gloves, you know, socks whatever it is, everything polka dots. But Southern, again, I've got to talk to you about this. Magnus Court started the saluting for the uh, polka dots throughout the stages. It's caught on. Ciccone even went in for it. Nielsen started it up mid-stage. Once they go over the KOMs, they started the saluting. What are you guys thinking of this? Uh, I have to say I'm not a fan. It's uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, What's the Peloton much. thinking? Yeah, Dervo. Oh, but I don't know. I, I'm not around to see them take the points. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if you're going to take one at the top that clinches the, clinches the overall KOM jersey on the last climb of the race or whatever, uh, like a fist is like, yeah, I've done it. But, I mean, I had difficulty at times when uh, it's like basically a, the break that nobody wanted to go in that rolls down the road that... Uh, 
you know. The full post this, up. The thing is, <laughs> you, you, you know with Magnus, he's been a bit ironic, right? But then it's like if it catches on and everyone's doing it, they haven't got Magnus's sense of humour, so... Yeah. Well, and also Magnus, he was he was in he was in Denmark, and they were going nuts there. So yeah, I sort of saw yeah, yeah, that, yeah. you know. Uh, but also the the polka dot jersey was was like it actually really defined. It actually helped out Jumbo and also helped out Visma in a lot of ways because mm. they did they didn't have to chase as much like these early mountains that they would have had to put you know Christophe Laporte on or Van Hooydonk or Mikkel Bjerg like. Last two climbs, like Trek just rode. It was a full-on lead-out. Like they just did, like okay, we're gonna keep it controlled. Mads Pedersen rode it, you know, a Cat One, and then Mads Pedersen like opened up with a full-on lead-out with Jaconi on the wheel, you know, uh, for a sprint there. So uh, it's the first time I've seen it so hotly contested. I'm not sure if they change the structure of the points. So, Tom, you would know. I was chasing it, but like actually, it's much better now. No, like yeah, they they got rid of. They used to have two. Um which counted double. So basically it was uh, always okay. going to fall to a GC guy, but they only did one this year. So there was a chance to actually win it from racing the smaller climbs, so to speak. Put it more in the favor of not being uh, Vingegaard again or Pogaccio. Well, Vingegaard, he ended up finishing third, but he was he was still substantially behind, even though he would have been collecting so many points just being at the finishes and more or less top 10 over every other climb. He was on 89 points and Ciccone was still 105. So... Um, I like that. I do like that it does go to, well, at the end of the day, I guess the G- best GC guy is the best climber. Um, I don't know. It's I mean, you're of- never going to get a guy that goes for it in the first week who's a bigger guy just taking the KOM jersey going to mm. win it because in the end of the day, it's it's too hard. Like, in the way racing is going, the way just to make these breakaways, you're gonna, you're, you are one of the strongest riders in the bike race. And you saw that with some of the breakaways that Nelson was in, Jaconi was in. Like, these are just, like, proper breakaways. And if they hold on, I think in, even in Bass Country, even just to hold on for some of those points Nelson did was actually quite difficult. Like, yeah, that's a proper effort. Who's who's? Let's, let's talk about who's walking away from this to a disappointed... Um, I had a couple names put down. I th- sort of thought, you know... An Australian, Ben O'Connor, I had high hopes on him um, being right up there in the GC, especially after, you know, last year being right up there. Um, Pino as well, saying his goodbye. Everyone sort of wants that fairy tale ending. Um, I myself went through that, of course, with Roubaix. And you can't always get your fairy tale ending. And he's come out and said, you know what, this sort of was a fairy tale ending, being off the front in his home road. So maybe he did have that sort of finish he wanted maybe he's not walking away disappointed guys any thoughts on who's walking away disappointed from this tour uh, maybe Gourmet from Wanty I think like mm. him coming in there was a big focus around him doing but I in fairness to him last year's tour would have suited him better there was a lot more stages that were sort of like those medium mountain stages that would suit like a Michael Matthews a Betiola like a Pedersen there was probably only one two that potentially came back for like a drop all the sprinters and then there's that punchier climb which certs Gourmet so not to be too hard on him there but I think like Monty definitely would have come in with high hopes for him to win the stage and didn't end up happening also you know Venard as well I don't think was was as uh, he was impressive but 
compared to what he did last year, obviously disappointing. Well, we've got to talk about it just seeing as you brought it up. Like the everyone keeps crapping on about it, the Netflix effect. You know, I wonder whether he was, you know, because when he was doing those turns, I never seen him do this before. And I'm not questioning his commitment to the team, but it was almost like an act how hard he was pulling. He had to almost come to a standstill afterwards just to prove, hey, I've left it. I mean, maybe you didn't even see this, Durbo, because you're obviously in the race and questionable whether you saw this time either but me viewing it from tv he when he pulled off from his turns he was pulling over to the side of the road practically unclipping just to show hey i've emptied it i've squeezed the rag dry every drop of energy is out of my system so i question whether he was doing that to say hey i am a team player that's look how hard i'm going what's the feeling southern about the whole netflix factor you're in the teams as well as you durbo you get the feeling of what the netflix you know factor is everyone's wondering i mean for me like it wasn't so much like that factor wasn't so much the riders it was more the the fans by the side of the road um i don't know how you felt it durbo but i felt this year was like pretty crazy pretty intense um and like a different kind of mm. fan that was there, you know, not your traditional cycling fan. And it was going pretty nuts. But I, that, that, that was a big effect. For, I, I don't know how it would have come into... I don't think any of our guys raced differently. That's all, you know. That's how I think I Netflix effect had a bigger, big effect. Like if you saw some of the fans that rode past, like, like oh, when I rode past them, like they weren't there for the bike races. That makes sense. They were there for the whole spectacle of it. And maybe uneducated fans you know like which is which is, was awesome i spoke to one of the guys from the aso who does the race radio and he was saying that like for him it was the most the most crowd that he'd ever seen um throughout the whole tour um and maybe the was netflix said pk yeah yeah so he said uh, that it was like for him being in the car he just said it was just like insane um which I think is a good thing, but there's also, like you said, there's those fans that are uneducated about it and they they don't really understand they've got to get out of the way and they're standing too close and, you know, a couple of guys got knocked off the bike and all that sort of stuff. But, like, it was it was insane. But also the, where we started with the tour, we raced all the north, like all the, um like, along the bottom, which I'm not saying that maybe those towns are, are more cycling, you know, friendly or i don't know like it just seemed to be been a bit pretty of a cool course i think for people to come and check out as well where it was we weren't in the north in belgium or northern france did you guys both have a netflix crew with you we don't do it no no. we did you did ef did and jaco didn't because i can't remember if i was speaking to you tom or maybe it was another director when i was hanging around the buses but they said that Having the Netflix crew there in the in the bus did change the way riders were and how honest they were and how relaxed they were around the bus. They weren't themselves. They knew the cameras were on them and they were just slightly different. Did you notice that, Tom? Yeah, I think you would have been speaking to one man. Oh, yeah. um, it's a big camera and a cameraman and there's microphones all the way around the bus. And I think um, – it's hard to be yourself in those moments, you know? It's hard for the director to be himself. It's, it's um, I mean, we had one moment where after, uh, you know, after a crash, the first time you see a rider, you know, it's, it can be quite an emotional time for a rider and there's also a camera there, you know? Um, which is, is, is really weird from my perspective because you, you want to be honest and it's a time to be, you know, genuinely, it's not about the race, it's about 
supporting the kid or you know and it can be hard to have such an obvious camera it you know it's it's not a gopro that's hidden or something like that and on the bus with the with the riders in the morning there was like i think it's a bit harder to get that kind of there's no debate because nobody wants to be seen as like that this is the person who's saying let's not do that or going against the team so that debate like you both know it's healthy at times someone says hang on a minute what about this what if what if this happens and then as a ds you need that to push you to think about other things but you we don't get it it's just like yep okay yep so i think that is people holding back a little bit what do you think Durbo has changed just listening to that and obviously you guys have had a cameraman traveling with you ever since i was back in green edge since 2012 the cameraman's changed over those years but there's always been a camera inside the bus in green edge jaco mitchelton whatever you want to call the team yet i felt like it didn't change things that tom was saying just from hearing that and understanding the differences what do you think has been the main difference between having a camera in the bus the whole time and having a netflix camera in the bus oh yeah i think like a good example was it's like when we had uh, Amazon Prime did a documentary on, on our team about cooking in the Tour de France was back in 2017. And we had the same setup. We had like a big camera, all mics on the bus. And then I ended up crashing out first stage and I was this rider, you know, Tom was talking to, like I was out the back of the bus and I'm going home from the Tour de France the first stage. And Whitey's trying to tell me, you know, you got to go home because you broke your ankle more or less. And, you know, the camera's in my face and I'm crying because I'm going home from the Tour de France. There's all the emotion and like... I hated that moment, like, in every way. You know, I wanted to mm. get the hell out of my face. Pretending to cry, you mean? Or? No. <laughs> no, I was genuinely upset. But I was like, get the hell out of my face. But the only thing is because I didn't know the person behind the camera and how that would be yeah. used and how he would portray me. And mm. I think the reason that we've always had a camera on our bus is because we trust the guy behind the camera. And I think maybe it's just because it's the first two years we had Netflix and maybe it's the same crew that comes back every time and they know what you know what um what coverage they're going to post to people out in the public that you're going to be like i trust that this guy's going to like not flick me mm. here and i might say something but he's not going to portray me in a way um so it's that element of trust that we we had dan jones for many years and then now we've got sam flanagan who's the same mm. guy since dan jones so i know sam like I might say something on the, you know, dispute in a, in a, in a team meeting, but I know Sam's going to be like, mm, I might not use that. And I trust that he's mm-hmm. not going to use that. So I think that's probably with this Netflix thing is like, if it is something that co- is to continue, and obviously if the fans are, you know, through the roof and it's a great Tour de France mm-hmm. and everyone's loving it, like it, it is going to continue. It is the reality, but it is getting that element of trust behind the camera that you know that you're mm-hmm. not going to be like, yeah, I've said something, you know, a bit uh, skew if and he's going to make sure he post it just for a story, you know. All right, we've got to talk about Lanton Rouge because I always love talking about the last rider. It's a position that um, I was actually just reading today that um, one of the one of the riders who finished Lanton Rouge three times, I'm not going to say his name because he's going to feature in the quiz at the end. He said, you don't go for Lanton Rouge, it comes for you. I sort of like that. <laughs> well, you don't chase Landon Rouge, it chases you. I think the exact quote was, but... I always think about it like this. You're the first rider to not finish. <laughs> no, to not not finish. 
So of all the people that have gone, have left the race, you were the fastest one of the ones who actually just made it. So it's a positive. It's a net well, positive. Well, in case you could be top like, 40 if you finish paying East, you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> 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 well, in case anyone doesn't know, Lantern Rouge means the red light, the the red lamp, which is the last rider in the race. It's a name taken from the train, I think it is, the the red lamp that used to be on the on the last carriage of the train. And Michael Morkov, Mikhail Merku from Quick Step Sudal, he was last six hours and seven minutes. Durbo, he was at finish 150th. Durbo finished 130th at five hours 16. So he was still an hour behind you, Durbo. Can you imagine being out there for another hour? Um, let's another another stage, mate. It's five hours. Another, another stage. stage. Yeah. We've well, he to... was exactly six hours, almost two stages these days, and that's what I want to talk about now: the evolution of the race, because I feel like the race has really evolved, especially this year, from what I was watching. Maybe just because I'm away from the race now, but. One thing I really noticed looking back over the years, and I want to just sort of look at this 2003 I mentioned before, there was 51, there was 198 starters, 147 finishes, 51 DNFs. And I sort of thought, well, this looked like one of the hardest tours I've seen um, for a lot of years. And Durbo, you can tell me how hard it was. But there was only 26 DNFs, did not finishes. Um, 176 starters, that's because we're starting with one rider less per team these days. I don't know, Durbo. I think the evolution of the race is that the racing seems harder, faster, but everyone is more willing to, you know, to have your Patakis. I was just watching the 2003 the other day. Pataki pulled out after stage four. The first mountain stage literally stepped off Cipollini style. Could you imagine a guy doing that these days? Everyone's so willing to get to the end. What I think that's the evolution of the race, but I think, Tom, you can also comment on that. But, Durbo, what is the feeling all the tours you've done, I can't remember exactly how many, I think it's eight tours now you've done, Tour de France, is that, uh, where does it rank? Oh, well, it's nine, but uh, nine. that's fine. Uh, the, uh, oh, that, that one, stage one counts, does it? Yeah, it does. I started. I started. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, got, I got the med- medallion. No, the, um, <laughs> I would say it's like probably one of the hardest tours, but I think we've got to really look at the reason there was so many finishers was course related uh the way they did the course we didn't race in the north and that's when all the enormous crashes happened and we didn't start with ridiculous sprint stages to start with so we added i spoke to a lot of the sprint sprinters about this and they loved the way the course was designed this year because when we arrived at the first sprint stage there was gc order there was a element of fatigue in the legs there was, and it wasn't like, and even the sprint stages that we had were designed like quite nice. Like there wasn't really ridiculous sort of, there was small roads, but it wasn't like chaotic. Mm. But normally we race up the top of the north, we go into Belgium when we have a, you know, Copenhagen or we're in Holland or whatever. These are where the big crashes happen because you have the mm. GC stress and then you have also the big engines who are fresh as a daisy and it's just like the yellow jersey's up for grabs and it's just like anyone can get it. Where when you rolled into Basque Country, I know, 60 of us thought, okay, next two days we're just going to get through and uh, not worry about it. So we left the GC guys alone and there wasn't these, I mean, now I can say it out openly, there wasn't the massive crashes that we normally see. Mm. That's why there was so many finishes, I think. 
What about Tom from your side of things? And I was talking about the evolution of the race just now is that the race back in the day, you know, I'm talking about in the 90s even and not even that long ago, it was literally a lap of France in in the sense of you saw the line sort of draw its way around. And of course, they got to a point where they needed to take the flight back to Paris. But they started and finished. When they finished in a town, they also started there the next day. And there was there wasn't these massive transfers that we see today, you know. Because I th- I don't know if anyone understands this, but actually, in order to do these crazy stages, these exciting stages, and move around the the country so fast, the logistics of it, and you would know a bit more about this. It's it's quite big. Give us an idea of how much sort of transfers you guys are doing after the stages and before the stages. I mean, I to be to be fair, this year was quite good in terms of the. Like we didn't change hotels a lot. I think we had maybe 11 hotels, for, like which is extremely rare. Because we actually only, like we cover, we were always in this sort of close pocket down in the south of France. But regardless, I mean, at the tour, you have to get there like an hour and a half before the start. Generally, you've got, an, even if the drive is 30 Ks, it's going to take you 45 minutes to an hour to get there because all the buses turn up at the mm. same time and they all have to be parked. Everyone's got 10 vehicles and the ASO have to manage all that. So you basically, you're having your breakfast three hours before and then that you've got half an hour for that and then you're off. Mm. Pretty much no matter where you start. If it's a long transfer, I think we had a couple of mornings when guys would take their breakfast and eat it on the bus even. You know, roll out of bed, go downstairs, get an omelette and some pasta and sit in your seat on the bus. And then after the stage, you've got, again, like it's, it's always going to be an hour. In the mountains, it gets really difficult because... Um, the riders have to ride down from the top on their bikes down to the bus the guy who finishes with the favourites has to wait for the guy who comes in the Gruppetto you know or if we if when we had the mountains jersey and then you've got someone on control at the same time gets delayed and then you know it, it's like we've spoken about it before about jumping in a car mm-hmm. which, and how rubbish that is to like jump in a car with a swanier to go and get your massage 10 minutes earlier so it's like the days are super long. I mean, the riders eat dinner on a good day, 8.30, and a bad day could be 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. Um, I mean, we got quite lucky this year because we only had five riders, and so it was only one massage. So then the, the cycle's much faster. <laughs> we um, got lucky. <laughs> and, yeah, well, yeah, not really. Um, uh, and, yeah, so, so I mean, the, the days are pretty, uh, they're pretty long, and it takes it... it I think even if you came and you just sat in a vehicle and you did nothing for the whole tour, mm. right? You'd still be knackered after three weeks of getting up on that and driving around all day and getting hot and bothered. And so yeah, big operation. Well, let's finally just wrap up the tour very quickly here. A couple last questions for you both, and I'll just sort of direct them one at each other. Most competitive, uh, combative jersey, Durbo. Do the riders actually give a shit about this jersey? Oh. Oh, mate, this, don't start me Jersey, about that. Not Jersey, but this Don't start me about that. <laughs> I, that answers I, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the what gets my gear, grinds my gears, is that the, the rider they gave it to. You know, like, it's unbelievable that, that Victor Campanats. I mean... Who got it? Victor Campanats. Come on. Like, the thing is, the reason he got it was because he attacked off the car every single day. But he was only in one breakaway that had any effect that was actually stayed away the line like there was guys like Felix Gohl for example who was going after it in the mountains or Ciccone even or like 
Askren, who won a stage, actually, for, yeah, Askren, great one. Back he had back. two Plus breakaways. Plus, he was in other, other breakaways early in the race, too. It, it was literally just because it was like TV attack off the car. And uh, and even then, at the start of uh, the final stage of the Champs Elysees, Victor Campanats attacks off the car. Complete disrespect to the yellow jersey. Went away for a minute and a half. And we, it was just like. Should have got it taken away it. from him for that fact. And Sutherland removed. A fellow, a fellow Brit and big news, um, you know, not great news, Cavendish crashing out before he get the record and then Vinokurov throwing a spanner in the mix going, you know what, I can, I'm going to offer you a contract if you want just to sort of tweak him a little bit. He was thinking about retiring. Will he be back and can he get that infamous record if he comes back? That's the big question everyone's wondering. Firstly, I think he would have probably won on the Champs-Élysées the other day, honestly. Um, I think he would have got it because um, he, he, he is that good. But for me, the thing is, I mean, how much suffering he has to do. And it's not like he just rides around a Grand Tour, man. Like you see the Gruppetto sometimes and you see how much, how hard it is for him. He's got to make a, a big decision. And it all depends on, I mean, what's the tour going to look like next year? Starts in Florence, finishes in Nice. So like it's not going to go to very many flat places I would think so if they do another tour like this year options could be limited so if I was him I'd, I'd wait a little bit let the dust settle um, take the time to make the decision because let's be honest he's he's racing for one thing now and it's that one stage win so so a lot rests on whether or not the tour is going to suit him it's not like he's going to race for one more year to go to the Giro or to go to the Vuelta. It's it's about this tour stage. And it's also going to be a point where it was like, is it going to, is all those cards going to line up too? You know, if it's going to be in the first week, Cav's not going to win the stage, no offence. Like, he's not going to win the stage of the first week. He's going to have to wait for fatigue. Like the Giro, for example, like I spoke to him in the Giro and uh, at the at the tour and he said, oh, these all, these idiots, they all rode too hard for three weeks, you know, not even riding in the group pedo. And then when he rocked up to, you know, in, in Rome, he smoked them because... He rode it smart, and uh, that's the thing with Cavendish. It's going to be difficult for him to actually like arrive with all those cards, you know. Let's talk about what's coming up because it's happening just around the corner. And Durbo, you're heading off to the Worlds, which I can't believe it's two weeks after the tour, um, which is pretty crazy. And we've got the Super Worlds. Just quickly, what's your feeling about hitting the Worlds? now which must feel a bit weird because the world's normally needs the closing of the season and what's your prediction on the form two weeks after the tour hitting the world so something you've you've never done i guess oh right right now i I wouldn't be able to finish the first 10k but i think i just have to just wait (laughs) you know what i mean like uh i have raced quite well two weeks after the tour um went to the olympics a couple of years back and that was like two weeks after and I just gotta like let the dust settle. So it's gonna be an, a really, really insane, explosive world championships. I think 950 meters is like the longest straight. Um, so it's well, gonna be like sounds a, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sounds sounds horrible. So it's all about freshening up now and uh, freshening up and recovering. And there won't the, the condition and load that you've got from the Tour de France is is high. So you won't you won't need much to sharpen up, but yeah, once I recover, then I'll go do some standing sprints. Maybe I could find a few bay crits to do. That would be more ideal, I think. 
I wouldn't put it past you to create a bay crit. I know you've done that and uh, you've gone and created your own crit for training. And Southern, what do you think about the super worlds? Just quickly, this idea that they're going to do every four years, have it all there. Um, they've left a couple of disciplines of cycling out of it. No cyclocross and something else has been left out. Um so it's not really the super duper worlds. I actually love the idea. I think it's as close as like most cyclists are going to get to doing a big games, you know, like a Olympics or a Com Games or something, because you're going to have people from different disciplines. And I think part of the I've never I've never been to one, but part of the fun of one of those huge mm. events is all the different people that are there. Um, is there a village? Your eyes open a little bit to that How stuff. How would a village be? It must be a village. It's got to be a village with a big bowl. Of- nah, we're, we're we're staying at a hotel, so I don't I don't know what they're gonna do. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that logistics wise, federations hate them. Like, they, I'm just talking to Gene what, Bates. Villages? Now, no, yeah, villages. Yeah, they're villages. Oh. But the logistics of the super world, Gene Bates, he's like he's just moved to cycling Oz now, and he's just like, you know, imagine just trying work. to too much, too much. All right, well, let's let's finish this up. We've, we've, we had heaps more to talk about, but we're banging on too much about the tour because it was so good. This wouldn't be wrapped up without a quiz, an infamous quiz. I do love a little quiz. So, boys, are you ready for the first edition of the Communique, Race Communique quiz? Hit me. Indeed. I don't know how we're going to do this. I guess just chime in when you know. It's an A, B, C, D scenario, three questions. It's Tour de France themed. You ready to rock and roll? Maybe just use your name. Okay. Let's go. Who? Wait, wait for me to read the ABCD. Or maybe just call it as soon as you know. Who has ridden the most Tour de France's? Is it A, Jens Voigt, B, Stuart O'Grady, C, Sylvain Chavanel, or D, George Hincapie? And for an extra point, you tell me how many they've ridden. Chavanel. Hincapie. Durbo's correct. Chavanel. How many? 17. Oh, Southern, to get a half point back, you can go for it again. It's not 17. George Hincapie's ridden 17. 18. Well done, oh, Southern. It's yeah. one all. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Question two. <laughs> which, of, <laughs> which of these riders have finished last, the Lenton Rouge, in the Tour de France the most times? Is it A... Roger Klug, B, uh, Van Severin, C, Jimmy Casper, or D, Tim de Klerk. A, Roger Klug. A, Durbo, you're, you're locking you're locking A yeah. in. Uh, honestly, uh, I, I have to, I'll give something different for the sake of it. Who were the other ones? It's not Van Severin, I don't think. Jimmy Casper uh, or Tim DeClerc? No, it's not. Yeah. I'm going to have to go with A as well. It's just not right otherwise. It's not. No? He's, only finished, he's only finished once in 2020. Van Severin, you remember Van Severin? He rode for Silence Lotto. Jimmy Casper rode for um, FDJ. FDJ. And Tim DeClerc, as we know. So the answer is, and you guys want to have another chance? Casper, maybe? I don't know. Van Sevenant, then. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. Go on. <laughs> well done. 
<laughs> well done. Well done, Southern. Three times, 08, 07, and 06. Three times in a row. Got himself a little hat trick. Last question. Come on, Derbs. Who has the fastest winning Tour de France time overall? Is it A, Jonas Vingegaard, B, Lance Armstrong, C, Tadej Pogacar, or D, Egan Bernal? Jonas Vingegaard. Dervo's locking in A, Southern. Uh, I'm going to go for... um, uh, I'm going to go for... Pogacar, for the sake of it. It is Jonas Vingegaard, and for an extra point, what year was Last that? Last year. Oh, Durbo, well done. He's back. Yeah, I was two points for Durbo. Twenty twenty, twenty twenty two. He'd seventy nine hours. Was it forty two k's an hour? Shit? That was. I don't know what the average is. You can work that out quickly. It was you know three thousand two hundred k's <laughs> just quickly off the top of your head. I think it was like forty two and a half k's an hour or some shit. Uh, well, you know, that was the actual order. B is Lance Armstrong, 2002, 20 years before, 82 hours. So it's got to do with the distances as well. Because I remember we were talking last year, like we were on record for the fastest ever. And they're like, when was the, when was the last one? They were like, Lance. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, they were, they were hooting that year. <laughs> Guys, thanks for being on the the Race Communique. It's been fun um, and we will check in next time. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there we go, guys. That is the first episode of the Race Communique. What did you think? I want to hear what you guys think. Is this worth putting out there for you guys to listen to? Is it interesting? I don't know. I had fun anyway talking to Durbo and Southern They're two of my good friends, so we were just sitting back chewing the fat anyway, so no skin off our back. We enjoy having a chat, and it's a good reason for us to catch up and just talk about racing our love. Big thanks goes out to Will Jones, who puts these episodes together. Our partner in the podcast this year at Life in the Peloton is Rafa, and a big thanks to them who are helping me put the podcast together this year. Loving working with them, and to you guys for listening. Next week will be a Life in the Peloton episode as per normal, and I've got a great episode for you then too. Let me know what you think of this. So guys, until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.